You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, this week we're with another renegade, a real troublemaker, we're with Mark Zernsack, who is the spokesman for the Tax Justice Network. You've seen him quoted in the press here, there and everywhere regarding uh, the problems surrounding tax havens, uh, mining companies not paying their fair share, and now the corruption in real estate. So, Mark, uh, I was very impressed with the Transparency International report that uh, you were acknowledged in called Doors Wide Open, which highlighted some of the many problems uh, uh, the Western world faces with uh, so many billion dollars uh, uh, circling the globe looking for easy money and a way to launder that money. It seems like there's no better place to do it than real estate at present. Uh, Look, real estate is an area where we are seeing uh, money stolen, particularly from developing countries, then shifted into wealthy countries, which are seen as a a safe haven, and particularly for Australia, uh, Australia so far hasn't moved to include real estate agents and people working in the real estate industry in our anti-money laundering laws. So it has been quite easy uh, to see that money shifted into Australia. And in fact, we know that some of the real estate firms actually target places like China and try to attract money Uh, often with no questions asked about its source. And that was the beauty of this report, as it went through and it highlighted uh, 10 particular loopholes you're interested in. And give us a little bit of background to that, because there's a a body that formed out of the G7 in the late 80s called FATF, the Financial Action Task Force. Yeah, so the Financial Action Task Force was a coming together of governments to try and address this problem of money laundering, and it included also financing for terrorism. So they did make 40 recommendations for governments to fulfil to try and deal with money laundering, and there were another nine recommendations on the countering of terrorism financing. Now, as part of that, in addition to the normal regulating the normal financial industry and basically just requiring them to do work to identify where is money coming from. So before a bank does... Uh, any business with a person, being able to source who is this person and what's the likely source of this money and making sure it had a legal source. They also suggested that certain other businesses be caught in this this regime, and that included lawyers and accountants and real estate agents as, as part of this. Now, Australia, under the Howard government, they did do comprehensive anti-money laundering legislation for the financial sector, and that included, they did include gambling and casinos, but they did leave out these other um, professions that had been recommended by the Financial Action Task Force. So that that's unfinished business. Now, the government is actually consulting at the moment. So there is a, an inquiry on through the Attorney General's Department to see whether these additional professions should now be brought under the anti-money laundering laws so that a real estate agent should have an obligation to check what is the source of the money people are using to buy property with and basically have to report to authorities if they think it's suspicious. Because if if you turned up with $700,000 to a bank, what sort of due diligence would they put you through? 
Well, normally you'd, they'd require you to prove your identity as to who you were and they would do some check as to what the source of the information is. Now, the banks certainly haven't followed these rules tightly themselves. So we've certainly had cases, for example, of money stolen from the Papua New Guinean government being shifted into Australia through banks by people who have been accused of corruption, in some cases charged with corruption or charged with fraud-related offences in Papua New Guinea and the bank doesn't seem to have picked it up and has been willing to deal with the money coming in. So there has been, the banks certainly haven't been perfect, but it's probably been worse with some of these cases around lawyers and real estate agents. And one of the cases we looked at uh, previously was a person who was later convicted of drug dealing here in Australia who, uh, as part of purchasing a property, made 181 $1,000 money orders from post offices as part of their payment on the property. And the lawyer and the real estate agent in that case didn't throw up any red flags around why this person was trying to conceal effectively the source of the money by using money orders from 14 post offices. And the whole point of this uh, report is that there's no actual legal requirements for this to occur. Great that you're reporting there is uh, some sort of traction at the government levels. What sort of indications are you hearing from them? Uh, look, I actually do think this time round we, we're hopeful that we will see the government moving soon towards legislation in this space. Um, even the real estate industry itself, they were one of the professions that actually did acknowledge and seem to accept that more regulation was going to be needed of their sector. I think the biggest pushback came actually from the lawyers. So there is a suggestion here that the lawyers will also have an obligation that when they're dealing with clients, that if they... Um, suspect they're being brought into a money laundering situation, they'll have to report it. And uh, they're being resistive of that at this stage, uh, citing client-lawyer privilege, particularly in some cases. But uh, it varies across the legal profession, and there are certainly lawyers who accept there needs to be some reasonable checks on what the legal profession is permitted to do in this space. I noted in uh, Doors Wide Open a reference to a South Sudanese uh, insider who brought over some corrupt money and uh, George Clooney's NGO The Century had uh, investigated how they'd smuggled that money out and invested into Australian real estate. Do you know much about that story? Yeah, so they they'd bought a, um, they had bought a property in Nuri Warren. It was, remember, it was over a million dollar property. The person who bought it was the son of a general in South Sudan and the general had an income while in South Sudan of $40,000 a year. So it was very difficult to, the, the question being raised was, why weren't basic questions asked about the source of this money? Because it would be hard to understand how the general family could have such a large sum of money to buy this property in Nari Warren. And, and this story did, it did uh, get co- media coverage here in Australia, it did run as on the front page of the Australian newspaper at one stage. So it's a, it's an example of where basic questions don't appear to have been asked in the purchase of the property by the people involved in that transaction. Mm. And the report goes on to show that uh, uh, the US National Association of Realtors found that 59% of purchases by international clients are, are made in cash. Uh, back in 2015, that report was compiled. So it, it's a widespread 
trend. And here in Australia, there are talks of uh, foreign investors uh, accounting for some 11% of the market, Chinese investors being 3%, but then 70% of that 3% paying cash. So about 2.1% of all property bought in Australia is paid for in cash. So uh, when people are getting squeezed out of housing, uh, it, it has a, a double effect, doesn't it? Not only are they laundering this money, but then it's having uh, society-wide effects on 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 everyday people. So, uh, yeah, wh- what nation uh, is doing the best when it comes to addressing money laundering? Uh, look, that's a that's a a good question. There, um, in terms of uh, some of the assessments, I mean, there there are regular assessments of countries out here. I think you know the US has done probably fairly well. Um, in this space around the corruption, interestingly, around some of this corruption stuff, but they certainly haven't gotten on top of it. I mean, Global Witness, moving away from the real estate again, uh, Global Witness did a, a expose where they went to 13 law firms in New York and basically pretended to, they had someone pretending to be a representative for an African government minister wanting to shift money into the US without either his own government or the US government knowing the money was being shifted and only one of the 13 law firms told them to go away and the other 12 were willing to potentially do the business. Now, you know, that still suggests there's a long way to go in this space. I think what you've highlighted, the cash, for example, cash payments to buy property should be a huge red flag and that should almost automatically, unless unless the person can really show there was a very legitimate source of that cash money, um, that should be a red flag. If it's not going through a bank, I mean, most normal people buying a property buy it through a bank. A person who turns up and is able to pay cash without any bank transaction, it does raise some serious red flags about why, where does that money come from and why hasn't it gone through banking channels. The US has the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. Wow, I can almost hear a TV show coming out of this work, Mark. And the way, the reading this Doors Wide Open report, it's uh, it's quite readable. You feel like you're a bit of a detective going through it. But uh, uh, this Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, they've issued geographic targeting orders which require title companies in select metropolitan areas to report information on the beneficial owners of high-value real estate. So uh, that's important that we have uh, some sort of uh, uh, geographic isolation of of where some of this money is coming from and where it's going to. And in an era of uh, blockchain technology with Bitcoin and so forth, uh, it's going to be trickier and trickier to track how money is flowing. Yeah, look, and then moving on to, I mean, you've raised there the issue of digital currencies. I mean, that is another area where governments are starting to, again, look at because money launderers tend to go to the path of least resistance. So digital currencies have offered an opportunity for uh, criminals to launder money. Uh, probably the most spectacular example of that was the Liberty Reserve Bank in Costa Rica, which was a bank set up by criminals for criminals, largely using digital currencies. But we are now seeing the requirement that those who provide digital currencies are going to also have to identify who their customers are and do some basic checks on the the source of the funds to buy the digital currency where people can use the digital currency to actually shift around real currency. And that's a good step forward. Now government, again, is looking at doing that. They've just, again, in the process of doing a consultation about bringing digital currencies under our anti-money laundering laws, which should be a a good step forward um, in that space, assuming they, um, they enforce it.
it must be useful having a, a, a confluence of campaigns in a way coming together because uh, the concern about black money and all of these cash poor governments around the world is helping to put additional pressure on the need to tighten up this this legislation and and the sort of transparency required look absolutely and and this this does real harm i mean when money, when money is stolen from developing countries that denies them money they need for health services for schools um for for basics there we see digital currencies often uh, you know this includes profits from people who trade in child sexual abuse commercial child sexual abuse material online that was a lot of liberty reserves business was around people engaged in um, the trade of child sexual abuse material so real people get harmed through these it's it's you know not something that uh, is kind of in the distance is actually is about real people and real harm so um, having action move in this space we also see you know when it comes to the black economy we know Again, you see real businesses trying to do the right thing being harmed and undercut by businesses who um, then engage in undercutting wages and, you know, they're engaged in tax evasion, which then means they need to hide what they're up to. So, again, they, you know, they try and turn that into a legitimate source of money, which is where they get back into the money laundering side of things. So often you do find many of these things are connected. Um, So seeing governments being more motivated these days to take action has been a really positive step. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, and this week with Mark Zernsack, the spokesman for the Tax Justice Network. And we're discussing Transparency International's Doors Wide Open report, an investigation into money laundering through real estate and uh, following that money out of corruption and into uh, these astronomical house prices uh, we're all enduring. So... uh, in terms of this holistic government-type reform, one of the biggest problems we have in terms of corruption is what I call lobbyocracy and the link between lobbyists and the easy money that politicians can earn by uh, sculpting their public policies towards certain sectors. Now, where does uh, the Tax Justice Network and the whole transparency movement uh, uh, stand on this issue of the revolving doors between government and business look at probably as the globally as the tax justice network it's not something we've had a strong focus on as a an overall movement individual member organizations would would uh, take a position on that and there's certainly i mean certainly members have taken great concern where we've seen people move from the big four accounting firms in and out of government particularly at the the global level where you might you know, have someone from a KPMG or an Ernst & Young go in and help write tax laws as part of the, the treasury of that country and then go back out and be working for private business around advising them on how to minimise their taxes around the, the laws that have been written. This is certainly, um, uh, you know, of great concern and the kind of critique that has happened from there. I think uh, what's been interesting, though, is to see a body like the OECD has recently issued a report, uh, a number of reports expressing concern about policy capture by vested interests and particularly talking about limiting uh, across the board things like political donations, limiting the ability of lobbyists to have access to politicians where they are paid lobbyists representing small private interests. So it's, it's interesting to see a body that, that would have previously been probably seen 
not in this this camp raising these concerns now about us not being well served where policy is captured by uh, vested interests. I'm interested to know more about this Financial Action Task Force and, and how a body like the G7 can trigger it into action. And now, as more and more concern uh, evolves about the state of democracy and this sort of policy capture uh, developing, how do you foresee the, the future of transparency initiatives uh, uh, evolving? What, do you, what are you seeing as some of the big upcoming issues that uh, groups like yours will be uh, stretched into? Look, I do think um, across the board, transparency has become a significant issue. We've certainly seen it in this in the tax justice space. So there has been a push to have large corporations have to break down their financial affairs and their tax paying affairs on a country by country basis and those reports being made public. Now at the moment in Australia, those reports are handed to the tax authority. They're not yet made public, but um, in Europe, we've certainly seen financial institutions have to make their country-by-country country reports public. We're seeing it with mining industry. So we are seeing more transparency in the tax space on this issue of what's called beneficial ownership, which is really about who are the real owners and controllers of companies and trusts. There is a real global movement to see public registers of who owns and controls companies. And even a lot of businesses want this. If you are a business that currently has anti-money laundering obligations where you have to investigate who you're really dealing with um, it's a huge problem if you're dealing with a shell company and you don't actually know who the real owner of the shell company is the person you might be dealing with who fronts the shell company is a, a lawyer or an accountant who's paid by someone who's really controlling the company it can be a big cost to try and try and find out who really is running uh, this this company so having a public register where you uh, you know, companies are required to disclose who their real owners and controllers are under penalty of um, serious penalties for not disclosing uh, would be a big step forward in combating some of those things. We've certainly heard from mining companies too that they're sometimes asked to go into joint ventures with shell companies where they might not know who the real owners are, but they suspect it could be government officials who are not doing the right thing in the background there. So there's lots of benefits to that. Um, and I think on this, on this kind of... Uh, space where we are seeing anti-money laundering uh, i think we're, we're seeing a tightening up that's in that space it's probably less there's less transparency because law enforcement say well we need the information privately so we can prosecute and investigate cases so um but i think reporting what we've started to see and certainly the u again the u.s has been good in this space is the u.s is very good at reporting the outcomes of some of those cases so when they've seized proceeds of crime uh, they'll report it. So when they seize the Malibu mansion and the jet and um, millions of dollars worth of micro, Michael Jackson memorabilia from Theodore Ubiang from Equatorial Guinea on the basis that they believe that was stolen assets from Equatorial Guinea, um, they made that public and they, they tend to do that. Whereas our government, if we try and talk to them about proceeds of crime cases or where they've seized money shifted into Australia, uh, they're very reluctant to pass on any of that information. So, yeah, the Australian government does have a history of, in a way, being a little bit embarrassed about Nazi war criminals and, you know, other sort of sketchy things here. Uh, why do you think there's that reluctance not to use uh, the public uh, microphone to really uh, put those type of behaviours in the spotlight and deter them from happening? In terms of why has Australia been reluctant to be transparent, I'm not quite sure. We We do seem to have... 
within our government a much a greater culture of secrecy than we see with with other governments on a number of, of fronts. And again, I can point to in this case India and and the US that both, for example, make customs data publicly available. So you can simply look up, you know, if you know a factory in let's say a factory in Thailand where there might be concerns about forced labour and you want to know whether any US companies buying from that factory, you can just access the US customs data and find out exactly who's bought from that that factory or, you know, in India, if you want to know if there's a factory who they're selling to, you can have access to that data. To suggest to our government that customs data should be public, you know, they, they're going to suggest the sky's going to fall in if, if they were to do the same thing. And it makes no sense at all. We tend to have this much higher level of secrecy here than some of these other governments. And there's no good reason for it. I think good public policy and informed public served by having governments that are willing to be transparent. Um, and it also allows governments to be held accountable by the, by the voting public. Tax Justice Network and Transparency International have been very proactive on uh, the issue of tax havens. And uh, it's been a while since I've covered the issue, but I remember back when Gordon Brown was the head of the GAT, um, made a lot of international headlines by tightening the loopholes on uh, reporting procedures and so forth there. But I still remember way back in 0809 when that was that uh, if you were a company that was being investigated within a tax haven, that uh, you still had 30 days notice to tidy up your affairs before the international investigation team would come through. What's some of the latest developments on tax haven transparency? Look, it's been it's been mixed. I mean, some of them have tightened up on some of their behaviour because of international pressure, and certainly Switzerland, uh, we have seen some breaking down of what there used to be their previous secrecy. A lot of that's been uh, due to US government pressure, but more widely, um, wider pressure on that. And we have seen some of these governments um, shifting and being less secretive in their behaviour. Um, and that's covered in the the Tax Justice Network every two years does a thing called the Financial Secrecy Index, where it ranks governments, particularly of these tax havens, or as we prefer to call them, secrecy jurisdictions, as to how they're performing in terms of a whole bunch of transparency indicators. So some of those places have been improving in their behaviour under the international pressure. Unfortunately, others um, have stepped in to take up some of the, the business We've certainly seen a lot of money move out of Switzerland, for example, into Singapore, which which is a concern about on our doorstep. And also countries in the Pacific have been particularly badly rating in terms of being willing to accept money mm, coming in almost no questions asked. So I think, you know, there are some... Con- there, we've still got a way, a way to go. So I'd say we've made some progress. I think the other thing that needs to be challenged here is often, you know, there's the... Secrecy jurisdictions get thought about as the sort of Caribbean islands, your British Virgin Islands, your Cayman Islands, places like Jersey, Guernsey, Liechtenstein, Luxembourg, the Switzerlands of the world. Um, But we forget that within places like the US, so this is the contrasting behaviour here, a place like Delaware acts as a secrecy jurisdiction and, you know, you have a building in Delaware which has hundreds of thousands of companies registered in it and solely for the purposes of of dodging taxes as far as and the very low regulation and the secrecy offered in that jurisdiction. Wyoming is notorious for being able to set up shell companies um, where almost no questions are asked. Um, And Delaware the same. There's a lovely little video online where you can see this journalist goes in and through this mum and pop operation gets to set up a shell company pretty much no questions asked in the name of her cat. 
and that all happens in the space of five minutes and she just hands over a couple of hundred dollars and there you go she's got a, a shell company and they don't know who who she is or what the purpose of that company would be so this is you know there, there's a there's a bit of hypocrisy sometimes with these larger governments uh, as well when they allow that kind of behavior and and the mixed message they send while they're doing good on some fronts they're doing very badly in other spaces Final question regarding what's happening here in Australia with the mining companies and this debate over the petroleum resource rent tax. Uh, there's been uh, an inquiry. Uh, the Turnbull government seem like they're backpedalling on uh, possible reforms there. What are you hearing as uh, the Tax Justice Network, which pretty well uh, pushed for this inquiry to be held? Yeah, so look, the issue here is we've particularly, our concern has been there are five, at this stage, five major gas deposits in Commonwealth waters that won't be subject to any other royalty regimes where all other gas and oil developments have been subject to royalties. And the idea was they would pay this petroleum rent resource tax. Now, with the way that tax has been structured, which was largely designed for oil, they've managed to build up $240 billion worth of credits before they've even started operating. So the chance of them ever paying any tax on on these deposits is next to zero so look i think you know rightly the treasurer called for a review he set up a review and to look at options for reform we're still hopeful we'll see some reform but obviously the gas industry has pulled out all stops to try and um, head off any notion that they should pay anything for the gas and they clearly if you're on a good wicket and you're getting the gas for free i can understand why they would fight for that but i think for us as the australian community we're getting diddled these are our resources they are non-renewable and we should be seeing some uh, money back for that now we've put forward a proposal that there should be a 10 percent royalty that would bring them in line with the other onshore gas deposits uh, we'll need to wait and see which way i'm still hopeful that the government that uh, will make a um, some reform in this space might not go as far as we want but i'm still hopeful I'm, I'm hoping that we won't see in this case policy capture by the large multinationals Um, completely um, looking after their own interests in this space. And that was Mark Zersak from the Tax Justice Network. Check out taxjustice.org.au for more of their excellent work. And, yeah, the petroleum resource rent tax, uh, even countries like Qatar will extract $26.6 billion from export sales of natural gas. Australia will just receive... $300 $300 million for our soon-to-be $60 billion gas industry. And this $300 million is a tiny fraction of what it takes from Australian mums and dads in beer excise. So uh, we'd rather tax people for having a, a beer and a relax rather than uh, sharing some of these windfall gains from our incredible mining industry. And uh, it's heating up there in Canberra. Will they be able to take on uh, the mining lobby in uh, the upcoming uh, federal budget. It's going to be very interesting to see. So uh, whilst uh, the Doors Wide Open report listed 10 incredible findings there, uh, soon after we finished recording, Mark and I were discussing how uh, a lot of those loopholes would be wiped out if we just moved over to a land tax system. You cannot hide land in a tax haven. So uh, the sooner we get on to this, uh, the more affordable housing will become, uh, the more efficient the Australian economy will become and uh, the uh, leakages with foreign investors coming in and uh, buying up our real estate will start to dwindle as they recognise the easy profits they've been banking on are no longer there. 
because uh, land tax is a counterweight to mortgage debt and assists us in channeling the never-ending property bubble away from the banking system and towards giving us all a tax cut. Yes, let's share the value of location, location uh, in return for uh, lower taxes on those who actually do something, on those who actually produce things that's where our economy needs to go so uh, very interesting though hearing about what's happening in the world of transparency and uh, just how easy it is for uh, corrupt money to be invested in real estate and when i saw 320 somethings uh, uh, in compete with each other to spend $925,000 on a um, pretty mediocre block of land near me recently. Uh, it really hit me as to whether these guys were actually wanting to waste money out of China or not. All right, now 3CR has a very important listener survey. And uh, if you visit uh, 3cr.org.au forward slash survey, You'll help us get to know what sort of uh, things listeners are interested in and from that uh, improve the station. So uh, get on to 3CR to fill out that survey and over to earthsharing.org.au for the show notes. All right, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. Thanks so much for listening here on 3CR.